Hello, everyone, and welcome to Emmaus Way. It feels weird saying welcome, given that I've only been in Durham for about 45 minutes myself. I just came back from Pittsburgh from a conference, so it is nice to come back from a long weekend and see all of you folks. So, um, And thank you to Skylar for that opening song. That's um, a song once described by Rolling Stone as chauvinism of biblical proportions, which I think is appropriate for tonight as we talk about sort of gender and patriarchy in Ruth, uh, which is undoubtedly a man's world. So um, before we go any further, um, I'm going to turn it over to the kids who are going to lead us in our community prayer. So please sing along if you know it. This is the doxo- doxology. Excuse me.
So as I said, welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, for those of you who are uh, maybe new to the community or uh, joining us for the first time, uh, Emmaus Way is a group of people who have been captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and are looking for ways to live into the work that God is doing here in our community of Durham and the broader community. There's a lot of different ways you can connect with the community. Uh, if you want to get more information or maybe meet with someone from the community, we have uh, a couple of cards out there on the table um, that allow us to get some more information from you or you to get some more information from us and direct you to our website. There's also a bowl out there which you're welcome to uh, drop offering or gifts into, and you can also do that through our website. Um, throughout the week, we have a variety of different ways you can connect, home groups, pub group, etc. Um, a lot of that's up on the website, and you can always talk to myself or Tim or Mark or uh, Ben, somebody else who's, uh, who's on staff. Um, any announcements? I can't think of any. Advent is closer than we think it is. Maybe that's <laughs> not quite an announcement, but a, a, a sudden realization that I had maybe this past week. Cool. Well, if there are no announcements, then I think we can turn it back over to Skylar for our two songs of preparation. Thank you guys so much for being with us tonight, and thank you to Skylar and Casey and Tim for leading us in music.
passing each other hanging behind the roads it shows late night calling each other late at night we met always beyond the road ain't it sad Thank you, Skyler. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's good to see everybody to, uh, tonight. I, uh, last week, I didn't quite make it back. I was coming from, um, where was I? Holland, Michigan, which was, uh, which was a, a lovely spot to be in. I don't know, some of you guys, are, if you're 
fans of the message, uh, Eugene or Eugene Peterson's work. I had this really fun opportunity to um, a group of us. It was a lot of a bunch of Dukies and uh, others from Duke Divinity School. We wrote a book on uh, the work of Eugene Peterson, and all of us had, that was like ten of us that had chapters in this book. And um, so we had the opportunity to go to. Um, I guess it was Western Seminary and Hope College, and present our papers with Eugene Peterson there. And so we would, he, we would, you know, like two at a time, kind of, you know, give like a 15-minute TED Talk thing, and then he would respond uh, to two of us. And let me just say one thing: when I am 82, I want to be that guy. I mean, because he was like speaking for two days solid after this, but you know, a whole like 10-hour barrage of commenting on people's comments. But uh, I'll tell you guys more. About that, but what a what a fascinating thing! I was I was imagining we're going to talk a lot tonight about the understanding biblical text, which is really challenging uh, given the the vast historical distance that we have from the text and the cultural changes. And if you said my assignment was to translate and even a single page of the Bible, I would say, I would need 10 years. To get, I mean, it would take 10 years to not only get the languages, but the... Anyway, so it was, it was really an amazing experience. He's, he's all that, and it's one of those people who... It's really amazing to see how humble he is given the work that he's done. But hey, tonight, Skylar, thank you. The, the, the musical text tonight have plunged us into the middle of the story that we're in in terms of Ruth 3. This is a, a, an intense story. It's an important story. It's a graphic story, all sorts of things. So thank you for not only getting us into the, 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 the risk element, the gendered element of this. Uh, it's going to be a fun story to look at. But this is our chance to give you some time to stand up and greet the people that you're around. If you're around somebody you don't know, certainly introduce yourself and uh, offer them the peace of Christ. In a few minutes, we'll get back and we're going to jump into uh, Ruth 3. I'm, one of the things I'm going to ask at some point is for somebody to read the text. So if you are like, if you want to glance ahead of it, feel free to do that. And here's a question, just while you're standing up and talking. You don't have to do this, but it would be if, 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 this would be an interesting question for a couple of you guys to throw to you, each other in conversation. Can you describe something that you did that was inherently dangerous or risky? That you did by necessity. So it wasn't like, you know, I'm going to bungee jump off a building without a bungee cord or not, not something, uh, something you don't have to do, but something that you, you felt like you had to do. It was, you needed to do this, but it was inherently dangerous or inherently risky. So if you're looking for something to talk about, raise that to the people that's around you and grab some coffee and some food and we'll get back at it in just a moment. While I'm setting up, did a, did a good story emerge from that? Anybody share something that they did that was dangerous, risky, but by necessity? All right, I'm going to put somebody on the spot. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, keep that in mind. That, that's gonna, it's a theme that's going to be a part of our conversation today. So we have been tracking through um, this story of Ruth. Tonight we're going to be sitting in chapter 3. 
And uh, Josh, by the way, thank you last week for uh, dialoguing uh, for us. I, I was, as usual, I always like, I kind of hate to listen to Josh's dialogue before coming up the next week because it, it just kind of gives me a little insecurity. Uh, so uh, Josh just does such a great job. We had good conversation about that. So, you know, here's the story. You guys are, most of you are, are up to date on this. We've had this, um, this young woman who's a widow, um, you know, presumably still quite young. She could have married when she was 14 or 15 years old. Um, and um, she has journeyed back into Israel as a, a Moabite woman. She has come back to Israel um, with her, her mother-in-law. Uh, so Ruth is traveling with Naomi. And um, we spent some time several weeks ago kind of setting up sort of some of the cultural stuff related to the Israelites' hatred of the Moabites and their fear of them and their, all of that, that will play again in the story tonight. Um, and uh, last week, um, Josh told the story of, of this very fragile existence of if you were a widow in those days, uh, there, there was really no economic place for you in society other than the generosity of someone else because um, and we're going to talk a lot about the intense patriarchy of that world but literally the world and particularly the world of women collapsed entirely under the authority protection uh, uh, choices good or bad of men uh, fathers husbands otherwise uh, marriage was not I mean I think all of us kind of live in a world where marriage is a choice uh, you know I, I look around the room and have officiated a good many of marriages out there and I don't think any of you were like forced into your marriages uh, but but in the in the biblical world and in the ancient Near Eastern world uh, marriages were an economic transaction they were planned by others and and it was a whole different world that involves so much less volition. And so last week we saw um, Ruth trying to care for her and Naomi and literally gleaning the fields uh, and, and the kinsman, Boaz, who is a relative of her her. Um, her, her mother-in-law, who has uh, had good, you know, has taken a kindness to her and has let her glean and has um, and has protected her and put her in a place of favor with him. And and if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, when we, or actually several weeks ago, because I guess we had Picha Kucha night, um, we talked about who is Israel in this story and God's selection of Israel and the work of Israel as God's people. And if you remember, just hold this uh, uh, tightly on this, that Israel was not chosen because they were better than anyone else. If you remember, we talked at good length about the whole idea that in some ways um, God's penetration into the world of humanity as a redeemer uh, started with with sometimes the worst examples of what humanity can be. And if you remember, we even talked a little bit about the idea that in some ways, uh, as we look at Israel, there's a tendency for us as people of the church to look backwards in kind of an old racist lens of Israel and assume these are the people who botched up what God was doing for them. And, and in some ways, 
tough news for them, but okay for us because we're the benefits of that. And, and, and it's and in many ways an, an, a horrific lens to look at Israel because in my sense, Israel was doomed to fail. The coming near the goodness of God uh, was almost a, a, a surety that in, in many ways they would, as a people, demonstrate the need of humanity for God to be in the world as a redeemer. And, and I use the, the work of uh, T.F. Torrance, who's a theologian in England who made the point that Israel in many ways was chosen to be God's people and was chosen to reject the Messiah. They would, they did what any of us would do, coming close to the goodness of God. And in some ways, God's covenant with them didn't obscure their sin. It revealed that sin and even made it worse. And if you remember Ruth, as she is uh, journeying back with Naomi, Naomi says, don't come back with me. Uh, And she renames herself Mara, which means bitterness. And in some ways, how how the story is set up is what makes Israel unique is not that they're good, not that they're better, not that they're better worshipers, not that they're better theologians, not that they're ethically better. They are people who are in a bitter painful dialogue with God about the pain in the world that they live in. God is redeeming that pain, and and in some ways, the closer they come to Yahweh, the more they get that sense of the way the world works isn't the way it should be. And in some ways, their failure to fall, their falling short of Yahweh's standard is even intensified by knowing that standard. So that's the setup with Israel, is they are not perfect. But what Naomi has said to Ruth is, if you're coming back, you're stepping into this long historical dialogue of a people with their God, of what it means to follow that God. It's a fairly unique perspective. It's not one that I think I ever understood or thought about until the last 10 or 20 years of what really was Israel, what made them significant. Now, in the story that Josh told last week, What is one example where we get the sense that Israel is, in many ways, no better than the people around them, Uh, no better than the Moabites that they thought of heinous pagans, godless people, um, people who had no worship? How did we we sense in that story last week that the Israelites were kind of just like everybody else? Boaz had to specifically tell people to not bother Yeah, so in this, I mean, literally, the idea that for Israel, there was no sense of a foreign woman who came among them unprotected. She would have to be protected. She would be harassed. Her food would be stolen. She would likely be raped. Um, there's the sense that in, in many ways, there's very little sexual volition among young women in that world. If they didn't have someone who had spoken for them, then they were very likely to uh, suffer all types of indignities. So Israel, there was not this sense of she was stepping into a Sunday school class where everybody's just above normal and we like every, you know, it's not the case. She was in in danger by coming into Israel as a Moabite woman. So in some ways, that gets us kind of back to the story now. Now, one of the things that I want to do tonight is kind of give us a historical 
reading of this story. And then I want to ask you to do a personal reading of this story. Next week, we're going to do a very theological reading of the story. But tonight, I'm going to ask you to do a very personal reading of this. I think Jenny is going to read Ruth 3 for us. So listen to the story uh, carefully, and then we'll, we'll spend some time kind of talking about this, the history and the sense of, of what's going on here. So go, Jenny. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. And turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask, for all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, It must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, Bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thank you, Jenny. So let's deal first with kind of the very overt sexuality of this scene, as well as kind of the, the racial images that are playing here. This is a text that is filled with uh, sexual play, erotic images. I mean, a woman in the threshing room floor, it's unthought of. Uh, she has to get up and leave early before someone recognizes her because the assumption would be that she was a prostitute. Only, only a prostitute would really do something like 
like that. And, 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 and in that sense, Boaz is protecting her or, or protecting her reputation. So this is a, a filled with erotic image text. Uh, one of the things that's clear in biblical and ancient text is the, the feet, the lower extremities are, are kind of a, a good way to describe the unmentionable part of people's bodies. And so in some ways there's an image where it's, it's unclear what happens sexually in this scene, but, uh, but the, the, the very much the, the idea of, of his feet is uh, usually in ancient texts a euphemism for his genitalia. And his spreading his cloak over her was... was so this, this is a scene that is filled with sexual images and sexual play. And, 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 and I, I want to step into the, the vulnerability of that. Uh, next week, very specifically, we're going to talk about bodies and we're going to talk about Ruth's body and, and how it functions in the, the narrative of Ruth and how bodies uh, play out in this. But let me give you a, a, an example of, of what's really kind of amazingly delightful in this scene. So um, a couple of years ago, maybe it was five or six years ago, I was at some conference and, and there was a film festival that was um, that was going on, and so we did our speaking and all our stuff, and then we we went to the film festival, and it was a faith-based film shorts. So all the films were like eight to fifteen minutes, made by independent filmmakers. And the very first film that night was an intense, an absolutely intense film. You had this woman driving um, uh, like a minivan, and she was she was. Tired, not like, uh, not very sexually. She was, you know, kind of like you would expect your sister, your mom, your neighbor, you know, in the minivan just driving. And, and, and she's for some reason in a kind of a very rural, wooded area. I mean, you're thinking Blair Witch Project the minute you see this thing starting to unfold. Uh, but she, she's driving and then the car breaks down and she's just, you know, she starts to panic and, and she can't get the car to start and and you see the the pan of the film and there's 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 no lights there's no roads there's nothing there's just the road that she's on and then all of a sudden out of the woods comes an african-american man and he kind of he's older and he kind of stumbles a little bit has a little bit of a limp and he walks up to her window and he starts tapping on her window and you know you're starting to get nervous and then he starts beating on her window and he starts hammering her window and you're like oh my gosh something absolutely horrible is going to happen here he's going to come through that window and sure enough he plunges his fist through the window of the door and he starts you know just tearing the window and she's screaming and screaming and you're like oh, I can't believe this is going to happen this is absolutely terrible and he reaches into the car and he grabs her and he's pulling her out of the car and she's fighting and resisting and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. I mean, this I, I know what's about to occur here. And he yanks her and he's dragging her out of the car. And literally, as her feet just clear the broken windows and there's a little bit of blood and there's glass everywhere and he's dragging her out of the car, all of a sudden a light appears and you realize that she had stopped on a railroad track. 
and there was a train coming. And, and this kind of innocent man has come by and immediately recognized that she's in horrible danger. I mean, those of you who live down here, I mean, you know when Amtrak comes, like 5 o'clock and 7. You know, I mean, I can, be, I can literally be driving to Mad Hatter's and I'll look at my watch and I'll go, oh, crap, the train's coming. If I can just get up Swift Avenue and over. And I, you know, I have to admit that sometimes that really long red light at the top of Swift, you know, I just, I get through the thing somehow because I know the trains are coming. And this man knew the train was coming and and you stand back from that scene and go oh okay i have been invited into a racialized dialogue about an african-american man uh, coming up to a white woman in a car and i have stepped into that trap very quickly in in terms of what i'm expected to do on this interestingly in this Story, a similar thing happens. So, what happens before the threshing? I mean, you know, Ruth dolls herself up. I mean, she finds her little black dress and all the best perfume. And I mean, she's, I mean, she has dolled herself up. I was laughing about this last night because I was preparing this and Kendall was getting ready to go to a high school party that, you know, the kind that, you know, in the typical high school party is kind of a threshing room floor kind of event. You know, it's especially around here. I mean, we, we're always, we, we're, we're like, we're mind boggled at the amount of alcohol and drugs that people do like around people's parents and it's just beyond belief but the the ethic in the culture here is you always spend the night there's no party where you don't spend the night there's kind of like a a big threshing room because it would be irresponsible to send teenagers out drunk you know so they need to spend the night and so Kendall was getting ready to go to this party and they were laughing about like some of their friends who would be like incredibly inappropriately attired because it was going to be cold there was going to be like a a fire pit and you know it's going to be outdoors and all those things and there were you know they they were laughing about how little some of their girlfriends were already wearing even though it was incredibly cold to to go out in this so that's you know I was laughing and going okay Ruth was kind of doing that she's she's I mean and and she's she's dolled herself up and she's gone to the threshing room floor and what what is interesting about this thing is whose plan was it the mother-in-laws. I mean, what do we know about Moabite women? They are thinking about having sex with you at all times. I mean, they look at men and they constantly say, I see that man as a sexual partner. How can I seduce that man? That's the Israelite image of Moabite women is you get too close to them and you will find yourself in some sort of sexual issue or problem they are to be feared and so the writer of this story has put us on the railroad tracks and let us fall right into our own implicit racism in this because who comes up with a sexy plan but the Israelite the mother-in-law who says get dolled up put yourself in this situation now think about what Ruth does here is and I know this is this is really hard for us to read a story like this that involves race and sexuality because there's very little overlap to the bodied sexual world that we live in and the world that's happening here. So think about this is that if 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 somebody's unmarried daughter was to be raped 
or has sex with somebody, what is the tragedy? What is the loss? It's economic. How's it economic, Ben? Right. I mean, and sex equals marriage. That, that, so if you have sex with somebody, you are being married with them. And so the true, in this patriarchal world, an unmarried woman or a woman is property. And so the laws are designed that if you were the patriarch and you had a daughter who was promiscuous or was raped, the primary issue is how do I get that which I've lost economically in this occurrence. And so for women, they live in a really precarious world. The widows, as I mentioned earlier, means a woman who is not under the protection of a man. And so you can be widowed by rape because somebody could rape you and then you would, you would not be marriable. And you also could be widowed by a willing loss of your virginity. You just choose to have sex with somebody and then all of a sudden the economic loss is gone and you are in that category of widow. But it's interesting, um, several, uh, you know, I never thought about this until I was dialoguing 10 or 15 years with a couple of feminist scholars and here's an interesting thing as well is what if you are a woman and your dad Let's say Jim, because he, he's my age. He looks dad-like. Jim has decided to marry you off to, to one of his buddies because there's kind of some sort of economic deal. And you look at the person, it's kind of Game of Thrones-esque, and you're like, you're not marrying this person. There's just no way in the world you're, this person is a horrific human being. Um, you could do one thing, right? You could have sex with someone. You could have sex with somebody that you loved. You could, you could choose your partner. Now, what happens if you do that? You, now, Jim's going to be really angry because he's got it. But let's say that you make that choice. What happens now? Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, so if I heard you correctly, there's a sense that the person could make it right, right? They could, that you've had this sexual liaison, the person that you've had it with could step in as husband. They could pay the dowry, they could, they could act as a husband in that situation. And the laws are designed, that's the do the right thing in the biblical code, is exactly that. The assumption is that men will do this kind of stuff when they're around women who are unprotected or out of the way or not around other women. But if they do those things, they have to step up and make Jim happy. They've got to, they've got to pay the, they've got to pay what's got to be done. And so interestingly, it's one way that a young woman could have sexual agency in a patriarchal world, have some power over her own sexuality. But do you get how big a risk that is? 
That is an unbelievably dangerous risk. Um, it, it's, 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 it's incredibly dangerous. But in some way, Ruth has had this experience with Boaz in chapter 2 where she's been taken care of. She's been protected. And she's gone back and told her mother-in-law. And this is a kinsman. And there's also obligations that kinsmen might marry unmarried women. Now, there's an order to that. But it's a burden at times. Again, it wouldn't have been thought about sexually as it would have been thought about economically. So part of the calculus would be is, would this woman bear me children? Would those children be assets to the farm, the the property that we have? Or would it be expensive? Would would we be burdened by uh, having to care for another wife and the fear that potentially that multiple wives might create contention or problem uh, in kind of the family clan? These are the type. This is the type of calculus that went into this decision. But interestingly, Ruth has looked at Boaz. And again, we don't know exactly what happened in this scene, but she has put herself in an unbelievably fragile, desperate, vulnerable circumstance. And she's done it for a variety of motives. One of the most significant motives is simply survival. Um, And and one of the things that that I think is good in the telling of this story is um, this is this is a tangent. But one of the things that I think people really struggle with in reading the Bible is that we look at relationships, I mean relationships writ large, families, marriages, couples, all sorts of things, clans. And it's so difficult for us to imagine the patriarchy of the world that was occurring. Now, I'm not saying we don't live in a patriarchy. Don't, don't say that at all. But there, it, it's just so Different. It's so hard for us to imagine this world. And it's such an easy temptation for us to take the norms or the decisions that people make and throw it back into our world and say, this is clearly what we should do. I mean, literally, it is so difficult for us to imagine this world. But I'm going to throw it back to you at this point. My original plan was to have you react to this story theologically. I've tried to give you a little bit of a historical, cultural uh, sense of how dangerous it was for Ruth to go into that threshing room. And when she said, spread your cloak over me, how incredibly vulnerable that moment is for her. So I wanted you to react to that um, kind of theologically. Um, But, you know, in one sense, God has not really stepped into this story yet. I mean, we've had a sense of God in the first couple chapters of this dialogue that Israel has with Yahweh that exposes their failures and exposes their pain. But we really haven't had God as a dramatic actor in the story in the way that we will see it in chapter 4. And at this point, you know, Boaz has channeled 
some godlike characteristics. I mean, reading the story, I think we might expect a good outcome based on chapter 2. He has shown virtue and dignity and a sense of care and a sense of honor. And he's spoken to her and said, you didn't step into this community and go for all of the young men. You, In, a, in an odd way, you've honored your aging mother-in-law and you've honored me um, as an aging man. So she's acted uniquely and he's acted acted uniquely. So in some ways, we're not totally surprised that this story is going to turn out pretty well. But at this moment in the story, think of all the things that could go wrong. I mean, certainly Boaz could certainly be in this moment. He could say a prostitute came to the the threshing room floor and everybody would have said, who is it? And he would have said, a Moabite woman. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, why didn't we lock the threshing room floor? Or why didn't we find more Moabite women or something? I mean, there would have been a, a very kind of racial reaction to that. But here's what I'd like to do with you tonight is ask you a couple questions. One is, how do you hear this story personally? Does it unsettle you? How do you, how do you process it as, a, as just a reader of biblical text? And then the second question I'm going to ask you, because you might intermingle your answers, is I asked you a couple of weeks ago to process this book through the lens of Ruth. Not the lens of privilege and power. Boaz is a wealthy man. He has tremendous power. He's making all kinds of decisions in this. But Ruth is the outsider. She's the one with the reputation. She's the one who doesn't have an economic way of of living. She's the one who has to take risks. Um, And in some ways, we've used this as a parallel to us as the Gentiles to see that we're the ones entering somebody else's story. We're not the ones of privilege. So let me throw that to you. How do you react to this story first in a personal sense? And, and how does this story resonate with you as you see risk, uh, uh, Ruth taking this profound risk for survival? For uh, How does it relate to your sense of faith journey? So let me throw this to you for some, some personal comments or thoughts on the story. You can react in any way you want to. Oh, yeah, Andrew. So I've been thinking every, every week we've, we've read part of this. And this story, for us sitting in this room, seems like long ago, but for lots of people in, in rural and even not so rural Africa, this could be today. Sure. Death in the world, if we plague just comes and kills people off. You know, Naomi loses her husband, her sons, and, you know, and they fled a famine in the first place. You know, it's that's, that's a lot of death in Africa. <clears throat> and and women are economically dependent on men. Sort of also very Slovenia <clears throat> from Africa. But another thing that's similar is, is that what we have here is completely a gift economy. Um, Ruth essentially gives a gift to, to Naomi and Naomi man to recognize it by my company. Gives her this gift of royalty. She's not she's not actually obliged to do that. Boaz gives uh, Ruth gifts in the beginning. He, he's not. He, the Lord does say he should let people clean, but he's really generous to her, and and so she, he sees her generous generosity of heart um, to to Naomi, and he in turn is generous to her. And Naomi, sensing that he's then a, a generous man, <clears throat> gets Ruth 
in many ways to, to do something that's generous by putting herself, essentially, in a way, giving herself as a gift to him. And that, of course, as you said, makes her very vulnerable. But what's really interesting, because we know that in gift economies, gifts also bring obligations. So when she, when she makes herself a gift to him in a way, then, then she puts him under obligation and he accepts it. He, he, sees, he, he sees, again, I think, generosity on her part, and he responds generously. Uh, and then he doesn't just respond generously as, I'm going to go. Gonna, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be your kinsman, uh, but you know he doesn't even let her without a gift. Uh, so I see a lot of gift giving there, mm -hmm. uh, and we're not, I guess, used to that. Our transactions are much more measured, and gifts do see, tend to involve risk that the other person will not repay. And so theologically, I mean, obviously, you know, God gives us gifts without, you know. You know, there's a several things at play here that I think are like, you know, in our culture, we generally give gifts to get people off the list, right? <laughs> Josh, I gave you some good stuff last week. I don't owe you anything. The idea that something's coming back at me is kind of an odd thing for us. And so, again, in this culture, you and, and I think I've said this many times in our dialogues, the word gift in many languages is also a word for violence because gift connects you to another person. It creates obligation. And there is a dance going on here, right, of escalating gifts. And it's going to reach a point of does, does uh, you know, where does it end? Where, where, what sense of covenant or obligation is formed here. So Andrew's exactly right. There's, this, is a, this is a scene that is in some ways unknown to us because we don't give gifts in that manner. But having traveled a few places, a lot of the places I've gone does exactly that. My advisor presented a gift to somebody in Thailand a couple of weeks ago, and the gift giver is identifying themselves as a brother by giving the gift before the university. And the man wept because he had said before when he'd been in the United States, you are like my brother. And so when my advisor George stands up and gives a gift to him in front of his faculty members and his seminary president and all those things, he is saying, I am your brother. So th th these type of exchanges can't be missed. Other reactions, unsettling, otherwise, things that you see. How does this story, as it's unfolding now, give you some sense of the journeys that we live in a world where vulnerability is almost unavoidable and faith journeys that require that? Other thoughts? Thank you, Andrew. That was very good. There's a way to say, I like 
That, Wendy, may be the parallel to this text of the world we live in. I, I, a lot of my colleagues at work are unmarried, 28 to 32, 33. A lot of them have dated online. And at least one of them has dated someone who wasn't what they said they were. You know, and so there was this kind of like, you know, the, the kind of a two-week process of kind of going, you know, that guy, it's almost like he checked the right box for every box, loves kittens, loves puppies, loves world peace, lo- you know, and, and, you know, and this dance unfolds of like, you know, that took a couple of weeks and finally some intrusive phone calls and lots of stalking. They got to go, you're not who you say you are. This isn't even your name. <laughs> and so that, that maybe that's a parallel in the world that, that we live in is that in some ways we have to, we, we, we understand that relationship Involves risk. Um, we do see in this story, don't we, that the relationship that Israel has with Yahweh is not simple, is it? There's been famine. There has been um, there's been food at times. There's been famine at times. There's been military violence. There's some of the same vulnerability that's unfolding with, and, and even Yahweh's presence with Israel has not crafted a society where it's okay to say, "Hey, I'm from somewhere else. Excited to meet you." It's it, and so we're seeing this 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 image of of pursuing that which matters in our lives is not easy. Any other reactions to the story? Yeah, SK. I mean, as I read this story, I just feel so uncomfortable because for me, I would want to hedge my bets. I would want, to, you know, if I'm Naomi and I'm thinking about this, I want to do the same thing. I want to establish a reputation. I want to, you know, I, I guess there's maybe not time for that because they have to eat and everything, but I want to, you know, kind of lay low and, you know, in a very unrisky way. You know, put out something for Boaz in a in a safe way. And I'm just so struck and uncomfortable by how they just went right for it. They just like went straight to it. Like they forced the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my. Per- I just feel really uncomfortable right now. Yeah. No. I, I, you know, I read as I read this story. I would say, SK, I, it was hard to imagine not being uncomfortable in this story. It is not. A pleasant story. It's not a comfortable story because of the the volume of risk that's involved. I mean, remember, we're dealing with a culture where unmarried women have no no contact with men socially, casually, without other people around. It never happens. And for it to happen, again, remember it's a patriarchy. We still live in a world when a a woman who has been attacked or raped, it's still going to be an implication that it was probably her fault. The DA is probably going to ask, what were you wearing? Where were you? Honey, why were you out so late? I mean, that kind of thing is going to come up. If you could take that and work it backwards to about the 15th power, 
That is the type of world. It never happens. It, it never happens. Um, and so there's not even, there's not a way of having nine or ten casual, you know, I keep bumping into you at Whole Foods. I mean, how does that happen? You know, well, of course, I know exactly what your car is, and I watch it go by, and I'm like, she's going to Whole Foods again. I'm going in there to get, you know, that never happens. And so there's no way for, I mean, this is the deep vulnerability of women in that culture. There's no second chance. There's no roll of the dice other than putting all your chips down on the table. And, and I'm with you, SK. This is a, an incredibly vulnerable scene. And it's one that helps us get a deep sense of the violence of the world that Yahweh has chosen to step into. Sometimes we think about incarnation is, it's kind of neat. God said, hey, I'm going to hang out with human beings. And in this is, and I, I realize this is not a, a deeply humanistic portrait, but one of the things that Ruth tells us is, given all the art and the good stuff that we do, we're God-awful people. We're dangerous people. We're violent people. We're willing to take what we want. We're willing to accumulate at somebody else's need. And, and so I get you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, Brandon. Um, I know how to phrase this other than to maybe put it as a question. Um, what does it mean that, I don't know if it's been brought up in our conversation, that Ruth is the great-grandmother of David? Or, mm-hmm. is that right? Like four generations, I think. Four generations, sorry. And so most the readers at this time likely are reading it through the lens of this is David's great grandmother, right? And, and part of it is to understand how he can be king and be a descendant of a Moabite. I think that's a tension in the story. Um, but also, you know, someone who, you know, throughout Second Samuel does great violence to Moabites and puts them, you know, lines them out, puts them under tribute, and kills a lot of them. And I'm just wondering how that plays into our reading of this scene. Um, certainly part of it is how, how did it come to pass that David is a descendant of a Moabite and still king of Israel the stuff that, that Josh has talked about you brought up in terms of racial issues I guess are at play there but in terms of thinking about this as a violent scene or a scene of vulnerability I wonder how that, that initial reading audience would have, would have read it and it just makes me think that maybe your analogy of the surprise of the, the man clearing the woman from wasn't as much a surprise for the media readers because they know they know how the story's gonna end, right? Because they know they know that they're gonna get married. They know eventually she's going to give birth to the grandmother or grandfather of David. So I'm just wondering how that you bring that into our Yeah, let me end on that and uh, before we go to confession with just a quick thought. Um, the story gets really theological in the in the next chapter. Um, those of you who are biblical scholars, can anybody think of some of the great quotes from Ruth in chapter 4? Some of the things she says that we say often in our weddings and things like that. Can anybody think of those things? No, I'm picking on you. Because Ruth says absolutely nothing as soon as her body emerges in this story. She becomes, as she becomes an embodied person here at the threshing room floor, we do not hear from Ruth again in the story. It unfolds, 
And it unfolds in a theological way. It's one of the reasons why we're going to talk about bodies next week. Because the presence of her body and the, and the proximity of her body to be in Israel sets in motion some really, really big things. But we will not hear from Ruth again. And in some ways, we will hear from Yahweh for the very first time in the, in the next chapter. So as you read this, I would love for you to read Ruth 4 in anticipation for next week. Ask that question. Why is Ruth invisible to some degree in this final chapter of of Ruth? Uh, What is being said theologically? And let me throw one thing out. Uh, Brandon, I don't have the answer to this. There's a big theological debate. But one one of the thoughts about this text is that it emerged during Ezra and Nehemiah. Here's all that you need to know about Ezra and Nehemiah. If you remember, those are the two texts of Israel coming back to the land after being in Babylon and Samaria for years, right? So they are no longer the people of privilege. They are no longer in power. They're coming back into a land that they're trying to occupy. And what was one of their strategies? Racial purity. They made it absolutely forbidden to marry someone outside of the race. And not only that, they dissolved marriages of people who were, who were Israelite by, by lineage on one side, but not on the other. They made a very profound decision about how they were going to relate to the people around them. Could you imagine this story? Yes, there's some comfort to, uh, to the, the, the way it turns out. Could you imagine the rabbi reading this when you just dissolved a marriage with your not Jewish spouse? Because of racial purity, this is a challenging story. So I throw that at you. I know we're not at the end. This is, there will be no altar call tonight. You'll have to wait till next week to, for the buses to wait for you. There's, we're going to leave right in the middle of this story. But ask yourself the question, what is being said about God? What is being said about Yahweh? What is being said about following God? And why in the world, if indeed this story came out then, why is this story encoded as biblical text during that very dramatic season? So next week, I'm going to have you unravel that. I, I, want to, I would love to hear your opinions of what is the theological conclusion, because we know it turns out well. Uh, so let me pray for us, and Skylar, you can lead us to confession. God, we're thankful for this text, though it, it, it truly challenges us. It challenges us to, to think that... Uh, for me, certainly I was raised that the safest thing I could do would be to come near you, that the, the safest thing would be to, to follow in faith. With, and in many ways, I've found that faith involves deep challenge, deep vulnerability, and in many ways, those are, um, are, are where its worth lies. But there's a deep sense of worship that starts to emerge in this text for me as I understand the world that we live in. So many times we try to caricature that world in much safer and more beautiful and kinder than it truly is. And a sense of worshiping you as an incarnate God who has come to redeem in the midst of humanity emerges to me in this story in a way that drives me to worship. May we continue reading this story, Lord, and may you continue to speak to us through it. In your name we pray. Amen. Skylar, thank you.
There's um, many verses to this song, and we've only planned to do three of them. But I do want you to know that the version I printed off the internet has, it's a conan, it's a broken hallelujah, as opposed to it's a cold and a broken hallelujah. Um, sing whichever version you like. <laughs> Secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing. Uh...
talked a lot tonight about risk and particularly about risk in the context of dating which is risky in the context of sort of male female relationships and when i you know sort of was first settling into like a long term relationship and then got married and you get so excited that maybe you don't ever have to do that again like <laughs> that's a very excited at least for me it was a very exciting moment like getting dressed in a dorky outfit and having to go pick someone up and my hands pouring sweat and the whole the whole charade i was ready to not have it but when you get married you discover that actually that moment of like having another couple over for dinner or going over to another couple's house is not all that different <laughs> and what i discovered is like actually i got to see what sarah was probably like getting ready for dates with me and she got to see what i was like because we're like oh my god does my hair look okay is this outfit all right i don't you know 
we're going over to their house. Do they know we're gluten-free? Are they going to make, like, pizza and bread pudding? Like, what are we, you know, what are we going to do? And it's because, like, really, the relationships we talked about tonight, breaking bread together, sharing a table with one another is a risky thing. Because we're asking people to accept us as we are. We're asking people to deal with our inadequacies and our idiosyncrasies. And we're asking people to sort of welcome us in a very vulnerable place. And here at Emmaus Way, we do that every week because we believe that that welcoming in that vulnerable place, that that accepting people of who they are, is a sacred act and one that Jesus gave us as one of the central tenets of what we do here as the church. So as you go to uh, the table tonight, maybe when you break off a piece of bread, um, you can think about that anxiety that you have felt in past situations, being involved in relationships, and extend it to the other person with the, uh, the kind of confidence and calm to help, uh, help them to know that they are loved and that this relationship is going to work out. So please, welcome to the table. Break bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you. Pour wine and juice, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. And all are welcome. <laughs>